Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... Are the thoughts that I'm thinking just like biological and chemical processes? I'm your host, Andrew Buonapane, and today we are continuing with part two of our interview with Jason Everett on gender theory and his book, Male, Female, Other. If you want to check out the first part of our interview, be sure to listen to episode 115. Everybody's story is unique. Some of them have had this experience since as early as they could remember. Other people, it's tied to more sexual attraction and fetishes. Other people has nothing to do with that. So that's why it really needs to be approached pastorally, I think, on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, it's so tough to try and disentangle those causes. And that circles back to what you're saying about the importance of getting to know the person. Yeah. And have them tell their tell their story so you can start to dive deeper and not to try and like cover over it or yeah. to marginalize it or sweep it sweep it under the rug or something like that. Yeah. 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 Because our, our goal isn't to solve them. You know, our, our goal is to love them, to meet them, to walk with them, obviously to help them to encounter Christ on a deeper way and the conversion that could come through that. But I remember one evangelical pastor, he said, look, if someone in your congregation comes up and says, I'm trans, he said, here's what you say. You say, I feel like I'm meeting you in chapter eight of your life, but I haven't had the opportunity to learn about chapters one through seven, but I'd really like to. And so they don't want someone who's got all the answers. They don't want someone who's just going to treat them like a, you know, a detective trying to solve some crime scene here. It's like, okay, let's just walk together. Let's, let's get to know each other because we could learn a lot from them. Hopefully they could learn a lot from us. And I think if we had more of that open attitude toward them, and obviously this does not mean letting go of anything of Catholic anthropology. This does not mean, okay, well then we're just going to throw away what God said in Genesis. No, we, we don't need to get rid of any of that stuff to accompany someone. We just need to realize there's a time and a place for entering into some of these more contentious debate issues. And it's not just like, okay, well, I can't have a relationship with you at all unless I can just win every single debate when I'm in your presence. A friendship's not going to last for long. Right. It seems like another potential way of obscuring the person's story is just skipping to the the opposite conclusion that trans people are made that way by God. Mm -hmm. So don't ask any questions about what their personal story is. Don't try to learn more about the people, just substitute an alternative version of revelation yeah. that sort of baptizes or is, attempts to sort of put a Christian face on what like more activist types might might want to accomplish. Yeah. So how do we, like, especially in some Catholic or other Christian circles, what do those people mean when they say that trans people are made that way by God? Do they mean that God is like sort of actively willing to confound male and female? Or how does that, what do you think they mean by that? Well, some people mean exactly that. Some people mean exactly like this is a part of God's good creation and God is all good and God is all loving. He made me. I experienced these things. Therefore, he directly willed for me to experience these things. What's missing out of this understanding of the human person is uh, what John Paul II wrote Theology of the Body. He presented this idea of a triptych. A triptych is a three-paneled work of art. And when you put all three works of art adjacent to one another in this triptych, it shows the full picture of what the artist had in mind uh, when he was making this little creation. So John Paul says that in a certain sense, that is man, a full vision of man is original man who we were in the garden before original sin there's original happiness there is original unity not just between god and man but between man and woman between our body and our souls there is uh, there's the harmony and goodness and happiness 
Then, after the advent of original sin, came the effects of that, of concupiscence, of darkened intellects and weakened wills and disordered appetites. And then we've been redeemed by Christ, and we're still kind of fighting through our salvation with fear and trembling. But this is the period of historical man, that we're fallen into sin, uh, impacted by original sin, but redeemed with grace. And then the final picture of man is eschatological man who we're going to be for all eternity, body and soul, united before God in heaven forever. These are the three pictures of man. And I think the born this way mentality essentially just detaches the first panel of mankind altogether and says, well, historical man is original man. In other words, like who God made me now is perfectly good, that there is no impact of original sin. If I desire something, it's from him. If I have an attraction, it's from him. And in a sense, like you said, we're baptizing all of our desires because we've been made by God. Therefore, all my inclinations or struggles must be from God. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. We're in historical man right now, not original man. This is a real period of history. We're all impacted. We all have darkened intellects, disordered appetites, weakened wills, all of us. And it manifests itself in a different way in all of us. And so that would be the Catholic understanding is that, that yes, you, just because we have an inclination or a desire does not mean that the desire is good or that human flourishing will be the outcome of indulging in that particular desire or inclination. And so each inclination as they come up needs to be discerned. Okay, is this God's will for me to act out upon this or am I perhaps living out of a particular wound? And a lot of times I find with the whole transitioning is the body becomes a false target of intervention. Because if you're fighting something like anxiety, depression, OCD, autism, like these are, it's hard to fight that. It's almost like you're shadow boxing. Okay, how do I know if I'm making progress? How do I know if I'm winning here, getting better? It's hard. But if all of a sudden the body becomes the problem, then you can really see that as a target. Okay, well, now I can get cross-sex hormones and I can change the way I dress. And it's like, you kind of feel like you've got your hands around the problem. It's clearly identified mm -hmm. and with an apparent very simple solution. Yeah, I, I think of the Walt Heyer who had transitioned, lived as a female for many years, went through the surgeries and then met a really good psychologist as part of his healing and, and realized that psychologist said, look, you have dissociative disorder, the, the trauma, the abuse you went through and this and that, that in, and Walt said for a while, transitioning was a, was a wonderful distraction for a while, but it really didn't get down to the core. Yeah. And that's part of the trouble when, when sometimes there are studies that are presented about the, the long or not the long term, the short term impact of mm -hmm. quote unquote gender affirming care that show some kind of initial improvement in mental health outcomes. Mm -hmm. They rarely go beyond like 12 to 18 to 24 months after the treatments have you know reached whatever point they were intended to complete. And we just don't have a lot of long-term studies about what happens after that initial honeymoon period. So even if like the first 12 months show some marginal improvement in terms of depression or anxiety or something like that. There are other studies that show in the longer term, those improvements tend to dissipate, which I think yeah. you go into in your book to some extent as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the more people that are included in the study, the lower the loss to follow up, the longer the follow up period is, the worse the outcomes are. And so anyone can look and say, hey, 24 months after the surgery, she's still happy she had a top surgery. Okay. But now she's only 18 right now. What's going to happen when she's 25 years old? And like you look at what's happening over in the United Kingdom, the Tavistock Clinic has over more than a thousand lawsuits against it right now. Over yeah. in the Scandinavian countries and even look in Amsterdam, they're making a U-turn right now in terms of their policies on puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. They realize, whoa, 
we need to hit the brakes here. I mean, you try to get puberty blockers in Amsterdam now, and it's like, good luck. It'll take like two and a half years to get approved to get that. And from the adolescence perspective, it's like, well, wait a minute, by the time you guys give it to me, my puberty is going to be over. And from the doctor's perspective, it's like, exactly. Yeah. They're buying themselves time now over there. Whereas here in America and Canada, I mean, it's just pedal to the metal. You know, you, you mentioned sort of understanding that the way we're created is not our fallen historical state and those two different panels on the triptych. I think some people might chafe against this sort of what they see as like the love the sinner, hate the sin mm-hmm. presentation that we're sort of we're sort of getting at here, realizing that the person in their in their dignity as created by God is different from what tendencies they might have now or the actions they might they might be inclined to commit now. And you know, I've seen a couple angles of criticism about this sort of approach that that you're articulating. One that either from one side, we don't really hate the sin. That is, we're being too tolerant about gender discordance or something, and we need to take a harder line. Or from the opposite side, they think we surely do hate the sin, but we are only use we're only invoking this kind of principle when it comes to like LGBT plus related type stuff. Mm-hmm. And we don't really mean it in the broad scope. Uh, we just mean it here when it's convenient. So that's the that's the opposite criticism. Yeah, I mean, the, the challenge with that phrase, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin, it's like, okay, it confuses the issue a little bit because, okay, is gender dysphoria a sin? It's not. Right. You know, it's, so, it's not an action. And for a person who does have gender dysphoria, if they're choosing to dress in a gender nonconforming way, a lot of times it's to mitigate the distress of what they're feeling. It's not like I want to be a walking abomination to God and I don't care what he thinks and I'm going to go do this and I'm going to go do that. Yeah, there could be a spirit of defiance of God. It could be a lack of trust for the father's plan for your life. Obviously, only God knows the level of culpability in that person in, in terms of their choices. And obviously, he doesn't want us hurting our bodies and things like that. But to me, the, the person with the greater sin is the physician. The person with me, the, the greater sin is the doctors in the pharmaceutical industries profiting by these things. The people right. booking the the trans, you know, drag queen reading story time deal for like the f- five-year-old kids. I mean, there's a culture war that does need to be fought and companies need to be boycotted that are pushing this stuff like target right now mm-hmm. you know putting right in the front of their stores like hey you know here's some swimsuits for your little boys that can tuck their genitals you know and this has that feature in the bathing suit for your little eight-year-old boy for the swimming pool this summer it's like yeah. whoa i mean yeah boycotts need to happen okay a culture war needs to be fought because all that needs to happen they say for evil to thrive is for good people to do nothing i mean yeah we need to be outspoken but we also be, need to be careful in the way that we speak okay and the right. way i'm speaking about this Is this with reverence for the person who's going through gender dysphoria while at the same time having the courage to stand up against this ideology that's swallowing up a whole generation of young people? Because when the kids go through this, people say, oh, this is genocide, you know, that you're not affirming them in their gender identity. If we don't speak up, a real genocide is going to happen. And what I mean by that is their children will never exist, nor will their grandchildren or great-grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren. And within a couple of centuries, you're going to have literally millions or billions of people that will never exist 
have the opportunity to fall in love or stand before the beatific vision of God, they will never come to be because some gender dysphoric 12-year-old got put on puberty blockers and then cross-sex hormones and then were sterilized for the rest of their life. Yeah. We've got to speak up here and see the big long-term ramifications of our silence. Yeah. And that's that's a helpful way to distinguish between companies in the industry who are standing to materially gain from pushing these treatments, these hormone blockers, like you're saying, mm -hmm. who are putting pressure on other institutions to cover and to pay for these treatments at the expense of the individual. And not to take this out on the individual, like your, your nephew who's a little bit lost right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then within a couple of years, this will be within, I think, about two to three years, we're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry just here right. in the States. I mean, I was talking to a nurse who actually works at one of the hospitals where they're doing these surgeries. And she said, it is the biggest cash cow for the hospital right now. Mm -hmm. Nothing is making as much profit as the gender department in terms of like the, the surgeries, like some of these surgeries with the follow-up ones required will bring in more than $100,000 from one individual's procedures. Yeah. And then they go on the hormones and it's a lifelong medicalization. And so a major financial windfall is to be had by these pharmaceutical companies, especially. One that didn't really exist 15 years ago, or if it did, it was a tiny fraction of what it is now. No. And there was this whole idea that, well, if you don't affirm them, you're going to cause all these suicides. Well, wait a minute. Do we have the historical data that there were all these young suicidal young people committing suicide because they didn't have puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and surgery, but now they have it and the suicide rates are tanking? The opposite is actually happening. It's not like we had polio, then we had a vaccine, and then the rates dropped. The opposite is happening, where the solution they're offering is causing the problems. The suicide rate now, 19 times higher than the general population if you follow these individuals 10 years after the surgery. There was a study that you cite in your book by uh, Jay Green looking at states whose laws on parental consent for mm -hmm. minor medical treatments differ. Some states in the U.S., uh, minors don't need to get parents' consent before they get a medical treatment mm -hmm. that would include something like, quote-unquote, gender-affirming care. And there are other states that do require parental consent for minors to get that treatment. And these states cover the whole gamut, red, blue, northern, southern, east, west. And he looked at the suicide rates in those states during the time that this treatment system has been on the rise. And he found that the suicide rate has held steady among youths in states where you had to get your parents' consent. And the suicide rate has increased in that time frame where you could get treatment without your parents' consent, which is the opposite that the narrative would have you believe. Yeah. Yeah. Because what was happening is after the kids go on, for example, puberty blockers, the girls are more likely to self-harm after going on puberty blockers than they were before. They're more likely to report that they do not like their bodies after going on puberty blockers. And then you look at the girls who transitioned from female to male after the surgeries, their suicide rate within a decade is more than 40 times higher than the general population. And people will say, well, that's because of you transphobic bigots, because you're creating such a hostile environment for them. They're taking their lives after the transitioning surgery. And that's called the social stress model. And that there's some merit to it that if someone's being rejected by their family or faith community, that could cause more depression and anxiety that could lead to self-harm and suicide. But it's not the full picture. The full picture is that 90% of people who commit suicide have a diagnosable mental health disorder. 
And hormones and surgeries are not the answer to suicidal inclinations. Sound mental health care is. And so what's needed here is a deeper dive into the underlying issues instead of thinking that surgery is going to make them all go away. That's why I know one anesthesiologist, he told the doctors in the hospital, like, don't even ask me to do anesthesia on one of your operations if you're doing it for that. He said, look, I've already seen the medical charts. I've seen the comorbidities of what's going on in their life. And to just put them under the knife, tell them it's all going to go away. He said, it's malpractice. He said, you are contributing with a mental illness instead of actually treating it. Right. It just affirms that whatever that initial skepticism or antipathy towards one's own body that somebody feels when they start to go down this path, Mm -hmm. this just affirms that instead of affirming the actual person and the goodness of their body. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that there that there is something to the social stress model and the need for families to like actually see their children and because that can have that the sort of negative outcomes that we're talking about too. Oh, yeah. But you know maybe it would be good to end on uh, one last question because we've talked a lot about the narrative surrounding this sort of thing and how God you know made or didn't make these people. How does God actually see trans identifying people as his children? Yeah. I mean I've got eight and I know how I see my kids. I know I saw Michael last night when he woke me up in the middle of the night throwing up in his bed and you know having a real rough time and like like i know how i saw him then as my child you know yeah. and and you know sometimes the th- things are great sometimes life is rough but you don't lose your status as as a child and so i think they need to understand that they, they hear these narratives oh god hates gays and like all that stuff but i mean i i see those people holding those like god hates gays god hates translate no god hates those stupid signs okay that's yeah. what he hates i mean the, the old testament says in the book of wisdom it says lord for you love all things that you have created and you loathe nothing that you have made because you would not have created something if you had hated it. And so you need to understand that you as a being, if you experience gender dysphoria, are created by God who loves you and that you were not born into the wrong body. You were born into the wrong culture, a culture that's actually telling you that you might need to hurt your body in order to be your authentic self. It's not the body that needs to be reconstructed. It's our culture that needs to be reconstructed. And so God has created you for such a time as this to participate with him in the reconstruction of our broken culture. And so don't let the culture tell you that your body is the problem. Your body is good. And I know accepting that has been difficult, but God is with you in that cross. In fact, God is the only one who really gets you. Not not even the trans community, those people that can commiserate with you of this is the way I felt that way. Nobody knows the tears that have fallen on your pillow in the middle of the night, except the father. And he was with you and Christ crucified is with you and they will walk with you and they love you. And the Holy spirit will encourage you not to give up that he has, they have a plan for your life. God is calling you to sainthood and God willing a decade, a century, whatever from now, we're going to have saints in the Catholic church who wrestle with gender dysphoria, but glorify God in and through their bodies. Even though they might've had a tumultuous path and a, and a challenging journey, that God was walking with them and that he found them and they found him in the midst of this suffering. And there are beautiful stories yet to be told. So just understand that God loves you. He alone knows the suffering that you're going through, but he still has a plan for your life and he made you good. Perfect note to end on. Jason Everett, thanks again for joining us. The book is Male, Female, Other. We've just gotten like a tiny little inkling of it uh, during our time together. Um, But we'll have a link to that in the episode notes along with the Chastity Project main website, which is chastity.com. So be sure to check out the book there. Uh, Jason, again, thank you for joining us. 
Oh, it's a pleasure to be on. And if people go to chessy.com slash gender, they'll find a, a link a, a, where we have all of our different links, videos, podcasts, uh, peer-reviewed scientific journals, different ministries that exist out there for community support for the families or individuals. All that is at chastity.com slash gender, and they'll find all the info there. But again, thanks for having me on the show. And we're continuing on with part two of another segment that was featured in episode 115, the rest of my conversation with Kara Bach on the movie Inside Out from 2015, directed by Pete Docter and Ronnie Del Carmen. I think the, the human ecology part that's important to underscore is that your interior life is not an assembly line. You're allowed to have different experiences of different quality, and they all, they're not all comparable one-to-one, which I don't think this movie is saying either, but the visual language of it doesn't get that point across. Yeah, what's interesting is like, it's something that I think, you know, as Catholics, you definitely need to grapple with is just the reality of like the body does work in a particular way. Yeah. And that has an influence in the way that we like experience the world, experience our spiritual life. And also we are embodied beings and that matters, but we are also not simply subject to the machinations of our bodies, right? And I think that that's true of the mind. And I know... It's not arbitrary. Yeah. Like, I have some friends who've gotten gotten tripped up over the years about, like, are the thoughts that I'm thinking just, like, biological and chemical processes? And, you know, there's certainly something to be said for, like, people who have clinical depression and there can be chemical imbalances in the brain and, like, that it has, like, a real impact on your emotions and the way that you experience the world. And so I think it'd be interesting to have, like, a Catholic address this kind of a movie with, like, the understanding that, like, we are embodied beings and there is a reality to that while also like our will and our intellect interplay in a way that is like deeply important to the fact that like we are embodied. It's like, we aren't just bodies, but we also cannot be separated from that body. Right. So there's a, there's like definitely a lot that could be explored, you know, maybe not for 11 year olds or, you know, in a very more minimal way for 11 year olds. But I, I think that there's something like really interesting there and would be very salient for our moment. Cause I mean, we just really live in like a very dualist kind of era where it's like the body is like separate from who I am, which is just not what we believe as Catholics. Like that's just fundamentally a totally different view of the human person. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Maybe when Inside Out 2 happens, we can have like Andrew Sodergren or, uh, you know, he's mm. a Catholic psychologist we had on last year. Uh, maybe we great. could have him on to do a deeper dive because there is going to be an Inside Out 2, as I understand it. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. At some point. I don't know if there's a date on that yet, but a few th- uh, fun things. I thought the ice skating dream where Joy is skating along to Riley's memory of skating is really cool. Mm. The sort of choreography of the skating, like Joy alternates between doing what Riley's doing in the memory, like they're the same person. And then in other moments, she is like watching Riley's movements like she's like Riley is this fascinating other that Joy is like captivated by and surprised by. Mm. I thought that was a cool like way to illustrate that your interior life Sometimes it's just you doing a thing, and sometimes it is you reflecting on what you were like mm. and seeing yourself as other, which I thought mm-hmm. that, was a, that was a really cool kind of simple way to illustrate that without any words. Yeah. It was a really touching scene. If we haven't said it yet, like, I thoroughly enjoyed watching this movie. I feel like as just a like, piece of entertainment, it was when I was like, this is fun. I feel like generally 
the characters aren't annoying, which is, you know, often a problem in some of these kinds of movies. And I mean, for me, I really just thought that in the end, the takeaway about the complexity of feelings, like how you feel about memories and even the way that you your perception of a memory changes over time based on, you know, what happens later in your life was poignant and like very worthwhile for I think kids of this age to be like, oh, it's okay to have change. It's okay for memories to be sort of like happy and sad for there to be some like mix of these things. We're not just one note and things are not black and white. There's room for there to be sort of complex feelings about something. Yeah. And it's okay to be sad too. You don't have to be happy all the time. You don't have to be Mm -hmm. addicted to good feelings. These are all very healthy lessons like that. I think the movie really gets across very well. Fun facts. Remember they go to the subconscious and that's where they meet Bing Bong, the imaginary friend. Mm -hmm. They have to sneak into that part of Riley's personality. And it's guarded by these two little funny guards who are like, they can't agree. They can't agree over whose hat that is. Yeah. Those two guards are voiced by Frank Oz, who is better known as Miss Piggy and Fozzie Bear and Dave Goles, who is better known as Gonzo. So really, that's so funny. If you maybe they sounded familiar, but you couldn't quite place them. So it's fitting that they're guarding the subconscious. Nice. (laughs) Love that. There's also one of my husband and I's favorite sort of jokes is in this movie, the like imaginary boyfriend who's like, I would die for you, Riley. Yes. We use that tip that <laughs> phrase all the time. It's, <laughs> it's just so perfect. Like it's exactly what a 12 year old thinks love is. That's one of the best jokes in the movie. Yeah. For sure. And then just like mass produces him like, oh, that's so good. Yeah. Mass produces him so he can live out his purpose. Be sacrificial at the end. That was so perfect. Yeah, the like little hair toss. Yeah, it was that. That was like perfectly done. <laughs> that hair toss is very like early 2010s. Mm, yeah, that's true. Very like fallout boy. Yeah. Also, another really good scene was the, the dinner scene where it's Riley, her mom and her dad, and they go inside each of their heads and mm. you see inside the mom's team. And in her head, Joy's not in charge. Sadness is in charge. And they're all wearing glasses. All five emotions are wearing glasses. And then in the dad's team, they're all, they all have mustaches and <laughs> anger is in charge. They're just thinking about sports the whole time. It's like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, and, they, and they, they're watching hockey instead of paying attention to <laughs> the conversation. Oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> the wife's looking mad. Oh, no. Yeah, it's like a military base where most of the time they have nothing to do. And then suddenly they have to scramble to take action and put the foot down. Uh, yes, that was so good. Another thing that that was really cool, a little more seriously, towards the end when Riley is really sad about living in San Francisco and it's all fallen apart and she's going to run away from home, she steals her mom's credit card. And one island of her personality, Honesty Island, collapses. But when it collapses, that honest part of her dies. It destroys the train of thought. And I thought that was Mm. a... That was a cool cause and effect moment where it's like a neat way of showing how sin darkens the intellect. Like when you are dishonest, it gets harder for you to think straight because Mm. you're not just going to be dishonest with other people. You're going to be dishonest with yourself and you're not necessarily going to know or communicate interiorly well enough Mm -hmm. to be able to think straight. So I thought that was really cool. It's a good catch. Sin doesn't just like stand alone. It doesn't have an isolated effect. It branches out in you. Mm. Or it has a cascading effect. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Yeah. 
So towards the end of the movie, after she runs away and she's sort of processing this sadness, and on the inside, Joy is letting sadness take over finally. Even though I thought, <laughs> I don't know, how, how did this hit you, Kara? Like sadness's role up until that point where she like wants to make the memory sad, but keeps apologizing that she is intentionally touching the memories <laughs> to make them sad. Like, wh how did that hit you in the first two thirds of the movie? To be... It felt a little bit like, I guess, just like thinking about the experience of being that age, that feeling like of encroaching sadness. And it's like, I don't know why I feel sad, but mm. it's like it's starting to just like bleed into things and I haven't processed it yet. Yeah. And it felt like a kind of interesting representation of that where it's like, why is she touching all of these formerly happy memories and, you know, Joy yells at her about it. And she's like, I don't know. I feel like compelled to touch it. And I guess I'm just like thinking back to things where it's like, yeah, it's like hard to explain. Like, why do I have this like creeping sadness? Or like, why has this like feeling I used to have about an experience or a memory changed? Yeah. I mean, I think as an adult, there are times when it makes sense where it's like, oh, you know, I look back on stupid things I did as a kid. And I was like, oh, like the true sense of like remorse the way that we're supposed to feel remorse like yeah. when we go to confession even if like in the moment you don't necessarily have it i feel like you know with years of distance from your sin you can be like no i actually regret doing that and even though there's might be like some good fun memory like i was with good friends and or something like that there's like a tinge of sadness because it was something that i shouldn't have done or something that was like i wish i had made a different choice and it sort of felt like that to me where it's just like this unexplained like creeping of like why is sadness touching all these happy memories which makes sense in the context of like yeah all those are memories of where i used to live and i don't live there anymore so it kind of felt like that inexplicable like why is there this creeping sadness touching all of my happy memories and i thought it was cute that like sadness is like i don't know why i feel compelled to touch all these. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, which i get the message like you can't keep sadness down you can't keep sweeping it under the rug. But it was it's so weird with the emotion characters where they seem to also have their own emotional life. Like Joy mm. is not always joyful. She gets sad towards the end. As mm. if like inside her head there's an even smaller little joy, <laughs> littler joy and sadness sort of duking it out. And when sadness is finally allowed to take control, she gets less sad, even though she's a sad person emotion. Mm. That is where it, it is probably counterproductive to scrutinize the movie too much. <laughs> yeah. uh, like it's more fun to experience them as dominant personality characters. Yeah. But I think the way it plays out in Riley's life on the outside is actually like a pretty positive example because this need for joy to always be in charge is like this addiction to positive feelings. And saying, mm -hmm. like, that's what really matters, and that's what it means to be happy. Mm -hmm. And that gets pretty decisively overturned in the last part of the movie. Because what Joy's not capable of doing in a fallen world, at least Joy the way they've articulated it as an emotion, and not the sort of a supernatural fruit of the Holy Spirit. What Joy can't do is make the person vulnerable in the same way. Because mm -hmm. what sort of salvages Riley's relationship with her parents, and her relationships with her friends eventually is they're coming to her aid in her times of sadness. And so that sadness kind of provides the occasion for the relationship to be played out 
which is what actually makes a person happy. Relationship mm. with others is absolutely crucial, regardless of what you're feeling. It doesn't matter how bad it is, because that, that badness can still play a role. If other people, especially your parents, can draw closer to you in those moments and you can experience some kind of intimate emotional unity. Mm -hmm. So that means being vulnerable and being sad and not pretending to be happy all the time. Again, in a fallen world. And so, like, I think what we see is Riley going from being kind of addicted to positive feelings to placing them at the service at a secondary level to something greater, to relationship. I would say, too, I feel like there's, of course, like a natural inclination towards seeking joy. So I think that there's, you know, a certain amount of like, of course, you would prefer to be happy. You don't like seek out sadness, you know, or, you know, most people don't seek out sadness. <laughs> to me, it felt like a balancing where it's like, oh, like, of course, we want things that bring us happiness and things that we enjoy doing, like, you know, no need to be masochistic and do things that are unenjoyable just to do them. But... Yeah, I feel like it's kind of like that integration of like, what is the proper place yeah. of seeking joy? Kind of just getting back to all of our earlier discussions about like the having emotions at the service of the intellect and the will is the right place because it's like, oh, yeah, of course, we're looking for things that bring us happiness. But also like we know that like the thing that we should really be striving for is virtue. Yeah, you might have these desires that are good desires, but that is the key of like learning how to be human and learning how to be an adult is putting those impulses at the service of our will and our intellect. If only there had been a well, will or intellect visible <laughs> among <laughs> the characters in this movie. But yeah, okay, so that's, that's a good point about kind of the, I guess, preferential option for joy. Because I was worried that this movie gave the impression too much that joy and sadness should be on a completely equal footing. Like by the end of the movie, they, they're sort of both in charge. I don't think that if that is the message of the movie, maybe it's not. I think that that might be a problem because like joy, the object of joy is the good which is present. And sadness is either the evil which is present or the good which is absent. If you're putting those on an evil footing, it's almost like you're putting good and evil on an equal footing. Mm. And we're not dualists, so that's not how good and evil work. Evil is always a privation that's parasitic on good, and good could exist without evil. So, you know, in that sense, joy could exist without sadness. And really, she is, in this life, important and basic and fundamental in the interior life, but not as eternal as joy, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting, like, you know, the characterization of sadness is either evil or a deprivation of good. Like, I know that's true, but I also think about things like discernment of spirits mm -hmm. and the like understanding of desolation can actually be a gift from the Holy Spirit. Of course, like assuming that you're like well-formed and this is all like in prayerful consideration with the Holy Spirit that like those emotions can actually be tools for the spiritual life to help guide us where we're like, oh yeah, I feel desolation. What, why, like what is the Holy Spirit telling me about this decision. The point isn't the consolation or desolation and just to follow that wherever it goes. It's to understand mm -hmm. where it's coming from. Yeah. See, I don't know what point I'm making about like, that's like push back on you. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if there's just like a difference in the way that in a fallen world or even just like emotions maybe have a slightly different character. 
So yeah, that might be one where I'm like, oh, that'd be kind of interesting to explore. It's just like, hmm, there's obviously like places where the Holy Spirit uses some of these things. That's like where sadness would not necessarily be a an evil or like simply a deprivation of good, but like a, using that emotion to help guide us. Oh, okay. As like a, a real affirmative guide. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, that's not like I'm feeling desolation. Mm. You know, we're talking about discernment of spirits. This is not about like I'm discerning something that is sinful. We're talking about like two options that would either be neutral or goods, right? It's like, so you're trying to really be like, okay, so where is like the spirit leading me and trying to tell me where to go? And that's where like that kind of feeling can be useful where it's like, I feel like people talk about this discerning religious life where it's like, obviously that is a good that you can choose. And it's like, why do I feel desolate every time I think about going into religious life? Like, well, maybe that's not what God's asking you to do that. Like you should be feeling in the other, like there's more to unpack in anything like that. But you know, where it's like, that can be just in an instructive emotion, not a good or a bad in itself. Yeah, well, I think this this good that is present, uh, which is the cause of our joy, has to come to an end. <laughs> but that's okay because we learned how to how to process these things and how to how to follow where these uh, where these emotions might be pointing us in a healthy way that points to relationship. So I think we can we can leave it there. Way to pull it all together at the end, good Brad. <laughs> Ugh, Much <yeah>. appreciated. <laughs> I don't know about that one. Well, we'll uh, we'll see if Elemental has uh, nearly as much to say about the about the human person as this movie. And further off, uh, see how Inside Out 2 turns out. But in the meantime, Kara, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Please share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now and God love you.